Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. One of the least attractive aspects of politics over the past four or five years was the turning of fact and fiction into a matter of opinion. Suddenly there was no such thing as this really happened. There were simply alternative facts and telling your truth. Even the old definition of good journalism, telling truth to power, becomes a little wobbly. Whose truth exactly? And who says it's true? Lawrence Wolsey, the master of movie horror, exterminates you with Matt. The story of Matt is based on scientific fact, on theories that have appeared in national magazines. Of course, the movies have known this ever since there were movies. For every film based on real life, the key phrase is based on. Sometimes the films go to extraordinary lengths to maintain accuracy, and sometimes not. Sometimes based on fact just means they've spelt the names right. No one knows the fine line between fact and legend better than Steven Spielberg. I could have got more. While films like Schindler's List, Lincoln, Saving Private Ryan and Bridge of Spies mostly make sure the facts are reasonably correct, they're often juiced up with little movie moments, you know, cute telling scenes, dialogue a little too smart, characters a little too appealing, all to drive home the story. Meanwhile, Quentin Tarantino isn't even that fussed about keeping the facts accurate. So what's the plan? We punch those goons out, take their machine guns, and burst in there blasting. Is that the plan? That's about it. Or not. Wouldn't it be a better story if a gang of Jewish hitmen took out Hitler, he wonders? Or why not stop the evil Charles Manson gang in their tracks? Come on, it's only a movie. Give the public what they want. Do never, ever turn one above six. I'm old-fashioned enough to prefer to know which bits of what I'm being told are true and which bits have been, shall we say, helped. This week, fact and fiction collide. A true story of a village who bought a racehorse is told straight and rather sweetly. On the other hand, a slice of the old demonic possession hocus-pocus called The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, claims to be true. Ed and I have proven the existence of the demonic hundreds of times. You've proven it to the church. This is a court of law. The standards of evidence are completely different. The court accepts the existence of God every time a witness swears to tell the truth. And a piece of fiction called Days of Bagnold Summer does what all good fiction is meant to do, holds a mirror up to real life. We talk to the director, Englishman Simon Bird, a little later. But first, a horse, a village and a dream. Dream horse. 
be brave. This is what you want to do. We're going to the races. The horse is gonna race! So proud of you. Seems like anything was possible. Dream Horse is an object lesson in how to do a feel-good movie. It opens in a little rundown village in Wales, full of people who've forgotten how to dream. One day they have an idea, run with it. It all goes well until it doesn't, and then from the ashes of defeat, rising like a phoenix. Well, you know, you get the idea. 1683, please. £32.28, please. But it's surprising how many would-be heartwarming stories go wrong, even when the blueprint is laid out in front of you, because the story of Jan, Brian, Howard and the rest actually happened. Jan holds several part-time jobs, including barmaid at the local club, where she overhears accountant Howard talking about the time he once owned a horse. I'm telling you, boys, she was my horse and she won. I haven't seen him in here before. Was a racehorse, does he? Owned. Undeterred by the news, Howard was almost ruined last time he invested in a horse. Jan is fired up. This could be just what the village needs, she tells her husband Brian. Brian, true to form in this sort of film, tells her she's crazy. Cheers, Nettis. I need something to look forward to when I get up in the morning. I'm going to breed a racehorse. Absolute madness. The big stars of Dream Horse are Tony Collette, essentially playing a plucky Tony Collette character with a Welsh accent, and Damien Lewis, able to use his own Welsh accent for a change, as Howard. He's normally wealthy professional, so going for this kind of thing. There's ways of doing these things, isn't there? 20 people in the village put in a tenner a week for two years. But for me, the most valuable player is a terrific Welsh character actor called Owen Teal as Brian. Generally, a villain or a cold officer type in everything from Game of Thrones to Line of Duty, this must be one of Owen's very few leading roles, let alone a sympathetic one. But he's great here, with or without his false teeth in. Yeah, well, there's the teeth, there's the tattoos, there's... <laughs> and getting them wrong... You know, get them, you know, with, with teeth in, teeth out. No teeth, with teeth. Good teeth, bad teeth. Unlike most feel-good comedy dramas, years passed during Dream Horse, though nobody seems to age much. The horse isn't even born when the syndicate is put together, let alone named. When the cult is considered ready to train, the name Dream Alliance seems an obvious one. We need a name. What about Dream Alliance? Is our dream, and we're all in it together, so Dream Alliance. Dream Alliance! Dream Alliance! Actually, the name of both the horse and the film are equally clunky. Dream Horse, Dream Alliance. Both sound a bit not quite. But in many ways, that's part of the film's charm. This isn't a slick Hollywood dream story where everyone in the village becomes millionaires. They start to forget who they really are. They turn to drugs. There's a desperate car chase. Needless to say, none of this happens. Remember, there's a less than 1% chance this horse will end away in a race. It's facing the wrong way. If he keeps going in that direction, he'll end up back in the village. This is very much a Welsh dream story, driven by Welsh director Euros Lynn, who comes from a background of terrific telly, Happy Valley, Broadchurch, Doctor Who, and has the guts to think small when he has to. 
when the horse is born, everyone will be owners. We'll all have an equal share. Ha! If you lot are good enough to own a bloody racehorse, so am I. It's a tenner every week, Kirby, you pillock. There are several unexpected Welsh faces in the cast, like stage legend Dame Sean Phillips playing a granny called Maureen and singer Catherine Jenkins, last week acting opposite Johnny Depp in Minamata, back in her comfort zone singing the Welsh National Anthem. It is that sort of film from the moment when the snobby trainer is called back for a second look at Dream Alliance to watching the horse work his way from the back of the pack to reach the lead. Dream Horse is all you want in a film about, essentially, a dream run, right up to the final credits where the real and fictional characters blend for a Welsh sing-along to a perfect Welsh song. We lost our jobs, our community, even our pride. And then Dream came along and reminded us what life is like when you are old. The first Conjuring film came out about ten years ago and it was a pretty efficient piece of schlocky horror directed by Australian James Wan, the man behind the even more gruesome Saw movies. You possibly don't need to see my curled lip to realise that neither were my sort of thing. Lorraine, you need to come back. Is saving him worth everything you have? Because that's what it may very well cost One distinction of the Conjuring films, including the third one subtitled The Devil Made Me Do It, is they claim to be based on real-life cases of real-life demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren. They're played in these films by Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson. This is Ed Warren, here with Lorraine. All right, let's get started. Now, I appreciate that even reputable actors like Vera and Patrick have to eat, which is presumably why they took on the job on the explicit understanding that they have to keep a straight face, even during the actual exorcisms that take place at the start of every conjuring shoot. I mean, suspension of disbelief in a horror film is one thing, but this seems to go above and beyond. Though I see producer James Wan has given rather more latitude. He clearly thinks it's just a movie. I really wanted Conjuring 3 to get away from the haunted house setup of the first two Conjuring films. It should be more on a whole different level, something that we've never explored before in the Conjuring world. Anywho, The Conjuring 3 is based on a real-life event, it says here, where one Arnie Johnson was possessed by demons. When he comes to, he discovers that he's murdered an old buddy called Bruno. You okay there? Jesus. I think I hurt someone. Well, I say an old buddy. The director goes to some trouble to make the late Bruno a bit of a bumptious oaf, so no great loss. But Arnie has been caught red-handed, albeit with no memory of the event. Ed and Lorraine offer their expert help, the hitherto unique defence of not guilty by reason of diabolic possession. Understandably, Arnie's lawyer is dubious. I am not going before a grand jury and saying he was possessed by demons. Whatever happened that day, 
That was not Arnie. But she's persuaded, rather more easily than I would have been, by Lorraine, the clairvoyant of the duo. Ed's role is more heavy lifting and promoting the defence that Beelzebub should be on trial here rather than the luckless Arnie. The court accepts the existence of God every time a witness swears to tell the truth. I think it's about time they accept the existence of the devil. But conjuring movies aren't meant to be about legalistic flim-flam. What we want is scares, and plenty of them. That means going to the old dark house where Arnie claimed he first met the demon in question. Lorraine immediately picks up that this is no ordinary possession. It looks like the work of an actual witch. It's a witch's totem. We think your family was cursed. And that connection's still open. Surprisingly, clairvoyant Lorraine didn't see that coming. But since this is now an open and shut case of demons invoking a family curse or something, they take their incontrovertible proof to the local policeman. He puts up a few feeble objections. I'm only interested in reality. But I can see things that your people can't. But you can't argue with Lorraine when she's off on one. In the film, they don't go quite as far as the real-life Lorraine's devil-made-me-do-it defence. She was convinced Arnie was possessed by 43 demons, but the accounts department persuaded the producers of The Conjuring 3 to go with the more manageable one. Something terrible happened here. Master Satan is not an adversary to be taken lightly. The most unlikely thing about the demonic possession argument, like its notorious predecessor, the Twinkie defence, is that it actually works to some extent. The real-life Arnie got a reduced sentence, though I think the Conjuring's claim the case that proved the devil is real may be pushing it. Aside from any ethical quibbles, The Conjuring 3 does what's expected of it. Some efficient mood setting, a few good jolts, Vera and Patrick pretending it all makes sense. Some fans have claimed that they needed to leave the lights on after they'd seen the film. I slept like a baby, I have to confess. All right. Days of Bagnold's Summer is a hard film to describe, particularly when you realise it was drawn from a graphic novel. On the surface, it couldn't be less graphic, or even novel, I suppose, the story of six weeks in the life of upbeat librarian Sue and her morose 15-year-old son, Daniel. Daniel is played by Nick Cave's son, Earl. Sue is played by the wonderful Monica Dolan. And it marks the directing debut of Simon Bird, best known as a comedy actor in the TV series The Inbetweeners. Sorry to hear about his trip. Daniel seems quite philosophical about it all, though. I don't want to be here, do I? I want to be in Florida, where I'm supposed to be, with Dad. I think he's quite disappointed, to be honest. 
Bagnall's summer, though, is quite different. And between us, I hope Simon Bird and I can capture its unique charm. Hi, Simon. How are you? Hi, I'm very well. Thanks for speaking to me. Who read the original graphic novel of Bagnall's Summer first? Was it you or was it your wife, Lisa Owens, who ended up writing the screenplay? There's some debate uh, that remains about that. I'm pretty sure it was me, although I concede that she she bought it for me as a gift. But I I read it first and and loved it and handed it over to her, and she fell in love with it as much as I did. It's something we kept coming back to, and and when I finally got round to directing my first feature, it was something that had really stayed with us. And I think exactly as you described, really, it's, it's a strange one because I think people, when I tell people that, that, that I've made a film that's based on a graphic novel, they expect it to be about superheroes, not about um, middle-aged librarians. It was the first graphic novel I've ever read, really, that seemed like it was aimed at middle-aged women. <laughs> um, what I mean by that is that the characters are so well-drawn mm. and it's empathetic and funny and and sad all at the same time and I loved that tone and that's what we tried to capture with the film as well. You talked about doing the change from being a performer which is mostly what you're known as Simon and and to becoming a director I mean did you feel pressure to become a director or is it just something you wanted to have a crack at? Absolutely no no there was no pressure at all I I think it was just something that I've always secretly harboured ambitions to, to do I love being on set as an actor and I love watching the directors at work and seeing how something comes together. I've always wanted to have a crack at it myself. Um, that aim has always been there while I've been acting. What was the first thing you did when you decided that this was going to be your directorial debut in a way? I mean, what was the first thing you looked at? Was it the script? Was it the look of it? Was it the casting? Oh, definitely the script. I think with everything I do, the, the first thing I, I look at is whether it's acting or directing, is always the, the script. And I made so many wrong moves on that front. You, you mentioned earlier that my wife ended up writing this film, but um, that was never a foregone conclusion. She'd never written the film before. She's written books, but um, she's never been a screenwriter. So I chatted to lots of different screenwriters before we decided that uh, Lisa should have a, have a go at it. I think both of us and the producer and everyone involved were very wary about the idea of a husband and wife working together. But I'm really glad that we did, obviously. Uh, It was such a a brilliant experience, and I've still got the ring on my finger, so (laughs) we came out all right in the end. Did you know Monica Dolan and Earl Cave already, or did they come out of the casting process? Well, I've I've been a huge fan of Monica for years, so I knew her as as a fan, but I'd never spoken to her. But she was always top of my list in terms of people to play Sue. So I just approached her and we met up and and, and she loved the script and we took it from there. But Earl came out of the casting process. It it just absolutely blew us away. We met hundreds of kids, but um, really there was never any questions. It was always going to be him from the moment he came into his first audition. For people Uh, who haven't seen the film, all you need to have described to you is that he is Nick Cave's son. Imagine Nick Cave's 15-year-old son and that's kind of Earl Cave in this movie. I don't know whether he's really like that. Sometimes I think actors get annoyed when you say that they really like their character in person, but mm. I always take it as a, as a compliment because I think <laughs> it takes r- real skill and nerve to be able to be that natural on screen. Definitely there's an overlap between Earl and, and Daniel. Again, for people who don't know the story, it's about a 15-year-old metalhead who's pretty surly and grumpy and about how he, his relationship with his mum develops over six weeks of forced claustrophobic enclosure very similar to a uh, pandemic-based lockdown but uh, we were really worried about casting that part and and lots of the the kids that we saw for it 
although brilliant in their own ways, didn't quite nail it because it, it's so important that as well as being grumpy and surly and morose, there's also a sweetness and a vulnerability and a sense of, of humour there. So it's not just a sort of cliche sitcom teenager. And that's what Earl was amazing at, you know, giving us real lightness of touch to go with the darkness. While we were on the phone to my history teacher... We just had a bit of a flirt. Please stop talking now. If it makes you feel uncomfortable... It does. ...then we can talk about it. Talking about it makes me uncomfortable. I have to say that when you first start watching the film and you you see these two people sort of daggers drawn in that way that parents and teenage kids are, you know, and it goes into the weirdest directions without seeming like that. It's not arbitrary at all. It's just something really cool and interesting. Well, that's very nice to hear. Yeah, I mean, I and everyone involved with it, I think guess we're always worried about it seeming a bit too formulaic and uh, end up feeling like a coming-of-age film. But really, like, as you say, what's so great about the book is it's not about Daniel's first girlfriend or, or whatever. That, it's really a, a love letter between a boy and his mum, yeah. which felt like something I hadn't really seen on, on screen before. You know, it felt so relatable. You know, ev- everyone's got parents and everyone knows what it's like trying to negotiate that relationship, either f- from the parent's side or from the kid's side. Yeah, we've had so much lovely feedback in the UK and and from Australia about it really sort of hidden home with people. So I hope it does as well in New Zealand. How close did you stick to the original novel? I've I've only seen some pages of the novel and I sort of Googled it and it looked completely different. The tone was the same, but the look was so different from your film. Yeah, we. I mean, the tone and the and the characters are the things that we were very careful with and did everything we could to retain and and protect. The look, as you say, and and also really the story is quite different. I mean, there is there is no story in the book. It's a it's a tone piece, and there's lots of um, vignettes, sort of postcards, really, of their summer together, and it's mainly drawings. Mm. So Lisa really had such a job to um, try and turn that into something that, even though there really isn't much of a story in the film, there is at least some sort of narrative over the ninety minutes. And in terms of the look, yeah, the, the look in the book is very stripped back and, and black and white and quite sort of grungy. And we decided to go the totally opposite direction and, and film it in, in widescreen with pretty bright, almost primary colours. Just on a you know, personal level, I felt I hadn't really seen a film in that sort of tone that came out of Britain. Britain's so good at doing kitchen sink dramas and gritty council estate social realism. But I wanted to do something really fun and watchable, something sort of, I guess, comic, ultimately. Although it's a sad film, you know, I hope people will, will laugh. What you said earlier about why do we bother, we're still here, aren't we? We can't muck things up too badly. The one thing I couldn't quite work out was when it was shot, because generally pre-COVID means big crowds, post-COVID means two people at opposite ends of the room, and your film is quite sparsely populated, yeah, really, totally, isn't it? Yeah, that's a really good point. It would have been much, much easier to have shot it. If, I, if only I'd known there was a global <laughs> pandemic on its way. No, but you're totally right. I mean, the film is literally about two people whose summer holidays are cancelled and they're suddenly stuck at home together. It feels incredibly relevant. But you're, you're also right that it's, it's very sparsely populated. It's so much about the hothouse of their dynamic. I don't want to see too many other people. It's just about them. And they're sort of isolated both from each other and sort of from the world. You know, they're, they're both pretty friendless. 
just about them, really. So, I mean, is the UK film industry coming out of its lockdown now, or is it still pretty tough to get into? Well, I mean, it's so it's just chaos, really. It's been organised. I think it's fair to say pretty badly. We're sort of in and out of lockdowns, and nobody really knows what the rules are. So, stuff is filming, but there's never really any confidence that it'll last. I mean, are you working on a new film now? Are you working on, on something else? Yeah, definitely. We're, we're, we're both working on another film with Lisa, and fortunately, you know, film development takes so long anyway that we were never going to... Uh, I really hope that we found some way out of the pandemic before we get round to making our next film. It's going to be a couple of years off anyway. Will it be a similar tone or will it be something com- completely different? I think it'll be a, a similar tone, probably. I, you know, I think the reason we landed on this project in the first place is this sort of tone of films that we love, Mm. films that are funny and and sad at the same time. I think there'll be some sort of overlap while also being hopefully completely different. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, I have to congratulate you on picking Bell and Sebastian. There is no band that could have been better suited for the film in a way than Bell and Sebastian. Yeah, and just an amazing privilege for me to be working with them. You know, they're one of my absolute favourite bands growing up and I, I used to listen to them all day every day so suddenly to be giving them notes on their songs felt a bit surreal <laughs> so I was just knocked out that they wanted to be involved and that was such a treat and I, we didn't even have time to be able to mention the great work by Thames and Greg and Rob Bryden who do these wonderful little cameos in it but I, I wouldn't want to take away from the two leads I just thought that Monica Dolan who's a familiar face rather than a household name but she's just brilliant She's unbelievable, you know. She's another actress, I, I guess, sort of like Olivia Colman, really, who yeah. is very sort of TV famous over here for her work in sitcoms, overlapping into drama as well. But it obviously just felt so, seems so obvious to me that she's just ready for a, a leap up into being the lead in films. And I feel lucky that I sort of stole a march on <laughs> on getting her her first lead part of the film because I'm sure there'll be so many to follow and, and huge success because she's such a brilliant actress. He spends so much time on his own. You weren't exactly life and soul at his age. When was the last time he had a night out? Just these three you wanted to borrow. As it happens, rather like to borrow you for an evening too. That's a sweet little British film called Days of Bagnold Summer, featuring Monica Dolan, Earl Cave and the music of Bell and Sebastian. And I was talking with the director, Simon Bird. Which brings this show to a close. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week, you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies... I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.